Our lives are governed by countless rhythms. Today, circadian rhythms and jet lag, our patients and ourselves. You're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician Roundtable. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, your host, and with me today is Dr. Curtis Graber. Kurt is a PhD senior technical fellow and chief engineer of the human factors section at the Boeing Commercial Airplane Company in Seattle. Thanks for being uh, with us today, Kurt. I appreciate that. And we're going to talk today about circadian rhythms and jet lag. So, Kurt, maybe to uh, start things off a little bit, we hear a lot about and read a lot about, quote, circadian rhythms. Some of it's probably scientific. Some of it probably isn't. How about starting us off with what is a circadian rhythm anyway? Well, that's a good question, Gary, because a lot of people I meet get confused about biorhythms and the body clock and so forth. Circadian rhythms comes from the Latin circa dies, meaning about a day. And they are rhythms that we find throughout the animal and plant world where various physiological functions have about a 24-hour cycle to them, different functions peaking at different times of the day. We know in mammals that circadian rhythms are controlled by a small set of nuclei called the suprachiasmatic nucleus at the base of the brain. And the cells in that nucleus actually have a rhythm of their own when they're isolated. So that's where we talk about the body clock. And you said this is not just humans that walk upright, but other animals as well. Animals and even plants, so they don't have a suprachiasmatic nucleus, of course. Can that circadian rhythm be changed? Can it be manipulated? Can it be put out of whack? Well, it can, but let me back up just a little bit first. You know, the importance of all this is to synchronize the various body functions. So, for instance, your adrenal gland really increases its output an hour or so before awakening, whereas serotonin will increase before you go to sleep. So this whole body clock idea is sort of like a conductor for an orchestra. So when you put them out of whack, you do two things. Number one, you can shift the whole clock in one direction, forward or backwards. But when you shift or try to shift it, you then affect all the various rhythms that it controls. And unfortunately, they do not adjust at the same rate. So you've got a sort of an out-of-tune orchestra here when you shift. So we, as physicians, will oftentimes measure temperature or different lab tests. I guess what you're saying is maybe sometimes we should pay attention to what time of the day we measure somebody's temperature or blood pressure or lab tests because uh, the rhythm of the body might be different. Absolutely. When I was at NASA, we did a lot of measures on pilots. And, of course, depending when we measured and where we measured, we found different results. There was some classic work done in oncology over a decade ago looking at when cancer cells divide versus normal cells, healthy cells, and quite a difference in targeting drugs to attack the cancer growth and not affect the normal cells was a key strategy based on circadian rhythms. So it's possible that in the future medications and when they are given may become a, an important issue. Yes, some of the new kinds of pumps and transdermal methods using microchips to provide uh, medical uh, pharmaceuticals into the system uh, have used that technique already. When you talk about the our knowledge of circadian rhythms, what we know, how do we know that? What is this uh, laboratory studies? Are these field studies? The key knowledge and the most accurate knowledge, of course, comes from laboratory studies where you can control the environment. Some of the classic work was actually done in the 60s and early 70s at a laboratory in Germany at the Max Planck Institute at Erling Andex, where they had subjects, volunteers, of course, living in time isolation chambers 
no sense of light, time of day, uh, outside environment. People lived there for uh, almost a month or more, and they found in that environment that circadian rhythms did indeed sort of run their natural course because there were no outside cues to get them back in line. Those cues are called the Zeitgebers or timegivers in German. And we found that some things, sleep would sometimes take on a 32-hour cycle. Other rhythms taken on a 26-hour cycle. So they were able to separate and show that the master clock, without the external environment to bring it back in line each day, tended to separate out the rhythms. Is our understanding that these rhythms vary much between individuals? That's hard to say. There is some, and I, you have to look at different parameters to understand how much they vary. I did some work back in the late 70s where we found some significant variation when they peaked. Part of it depends, of course, on your lifestyle. Are you an early riser? Do you tend to have dinner at 5 in the afternoon versus 8 o'clock at night? All those things can affect the exact timing of when certain rhythms peak. You are listening to Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and I'm speaking with Curtis Graber, Ph.D., and we are discussing circadian rhythms and jet lag. Well, speaking of jet lag, Kurt, a lot of people confuse the issue of circadian rhythms and jet lag. How about talking to us a little bit about the latter and what the difference is? Well, that's a good question, Gary, because often when I travel, I hear people talking about jet lag, and sometimes I try to offer a little advice. And I find people think that jet lag is all about being on an airplane for a long period of time and not being able to sleep and the seat's not as comfortable as they'd like, and that's all jet lag. Well, technically... That's just a part of the story. The jet lag really refers to the fact that the body clock cannot adjust instantaneously to a time zone shift. It has nothing to do with low humidity in airplane, uh, lack of fluids, or maybe even bad airline food that we sometimes experience. So to be strict about it, jet lag really refers to the ability of the body clock not to shift. And it's typically manifested in sleep difficulties, though it also affects digestion, and a variety of other factors, including cognitive processing, that the body clock has an effect on. I wonder if you might share with us a little bit of the research that you've done that involves this question of jet lag and performance. Well, we did a lot of work when I was at NASA, particularly on airline pilots, and when I used to be at Walter Reed on, on actually uh, troops being transported into other locations. And we did a lot of performance tests, as well as looking at sleep and so forth. There is a clear deficit in performance after a time zone shift of more than three hours. The time it takes to recover that depends, and it also depends on the kind of performance. You know, is it mathematical calculations? Is it beginning to find your way on a map? The ability to concentrate on an article and extract the important information? Some of that's tied to sleep loss, but we also know that the ability to do those things in the normal day varies at different times of the day. So studies done on students shows that calculating mathematics is done better in the morning. Ability to extract from reading is better in the afternoon. So now you shift several time zones and you add the sleep loss to it, and that, that becomes the problem. That might be a reasonable sort of knowledge for us as physicians to tell our patients about things to expect on travels. and. I guess also you've probably had this experience traveling to give a speech or to participate in a conference. Many physicians do that. Any warnings you would give them about their, their cognitive abilities and how much circadian rhythm shift is, is too much? Well, we can talk a little bit about the sleep loss. I actually once uh, helped consult with the San Francisco 49ers on this exact issue about how would they handle constant trips back and forth across the country. 
when I travel, and I have to look at the length of the trip and what my purpose there is. If, I, if I'm on vacation, I'm going to be there two weeks, I just gradually roll with it and my sleep adjusts over a couple of days. If I'm going to be arriving and giving a speech the next day, I happen to know from the research we did at NASA that usually the first night's sleep is pretty good. The second night's sleep is the problem. So we can sometimes pace ourselves that way. When you talk to athletes or businessmen, you point out the research shows that because you lose sleep on the plane, typically the first night's sleep in the new location is good. Most say, oh, I never thought about that, but you're right. But on the second night, after you no longer have the sleep deprivation, but are still affected by the new time zone, Typically, your sleep is poor. So the data to watch out for is day three. And most research showed back in the 70s that day three was the worst subjective jet lag. We didn't know why then. Now we do. So the warning is watch out for day three. If you're going to do something important, maybe uh, day one is better. Yeah, maybe so. We as physicians have occasion to counsel our patients about travel. Usually those issues involve what medications to take or what uh, inoculations to take. Do you think it makes some sense for us as docs to talk to our patients about some of these issues that are secondary to circadian dysrhythmia? I think so, because one of the classic findings done, again, work done back in the 70s and 80s shows that the immune system, of course, which has a strong circadian rhythm, becomes somewhat flattened in that rhythm the first couple days in a new time zone. A lot of us have expected for a long time that the ability of the immune system to deal with new uh, threats in a new environment is somewhat suppressed. Uh, you hear a lot of travelers saying they travel and they may get sick or something, and it's the, the germs they're exposed to on the airplane. Well, we typically know, as you know, that we have very, very, very good filters on airplanes' systems, such that it's not so much the exposure, but the fact that their immune system now, when they get there, is not as robust as it was when they left. The other kinds of advice that I often give to people that I talk who are going to take a trip is when you get to the new time zone, avoid taking a nap if all possible. And the reason I say that is because a nap will tend to be uh, occur at a time appropriate to your old time zone. And if you take that nap, you're just telling your body you haven't really moved at all. So it delays your adjustment. Kurt, I know you've done work with people in safety-sensitive positions like pilots. Do you give them that same advice, and do they tend to take it? Well, we did a lot of work, actually, the entire 1980s, early 90s at NASA, trying to do exactly that. We published a lot of it. We presented it at a lot of conferences. We actually developed specific advice for pilots at various airlines. I'd like to thank Dr. Graber, who's been our guest. We've been talking about circadian rhythms and jet lag. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. <laughs>